Okay. Is it warming up? There you go. Sometimes it takes a second. Sorry about that. Good morning, and good to see you again. As, as Tim said, welcome. I'm so glad you're here this morning. And uh, that was Tim Dodge, leading us in worship. And my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the other pastors here. Glad you're here. We are studying in the life of David, King David, in the Old Testament. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. I'm going to look at, try to look at the whole chapter. It's a good bit of, good bit of text. Did you grow up playing hide-and-seek? Do you remember your best hide-and-seek moment? May I share mine with you? And it actually was when I was 20 years old. Uh, I just remember that. No comment. Because I was working at a summer camp. It was a, a camp for boys. And the, the activity that I helped out with was called Earth Games. And at this particular boys' camp, Earth Games is probably the most loosely defined activity. It's sort of a combination of... Uh, playing in the woods in camo and, and raiding other activities with water balloons is, is Earth Games. So I and another guy, we headed up Earth Games. So one day the activity, which we usually thought up five minutes before um, the period started, was sort of a hide-and-seek. We had on camo and camo face paint and, like, plastic machine guns to give it the, you know, combat flair. And uh, we said, okay, let us go in the woods. Here's the boundaries. Y'all have to come find us. So we're, we're hiding. You seek us out. And um, if we aim our gun at, uh, no, if you find us, you know, we're, you win. So they give us about a three-minute lead. I go into the woods. I'm looking around. And so I decide to climb a tree. And so I and my plastic gun, we, we climb up the tree. And so we, we hear the kids just pouring into the woods. And they spread out. And one boy comes to my tree and starts to climb it. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm done. He's going to look up in the tree and he's going to see me. However, I was in camo. Keep that in mind. And uh, so he climbs my tree without seeing me. And so I let him get situated. And I quietly worked my way down to him. And I got my little plastic machine gun and stuck it down and did that to him from above. And he looked up at me like, how did you do that? It's like the one time at camp where my stock really, you know, went up, went up high. But something like that happens in this passage, and, and the stakes are way, 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 way higher. Um, just to catch you up, the, the main characters you're going to encounter in this passage, David, for sure, still a young man, He's already been anointed to be king, but he's not on the throne yet. And you're going to keep hearing that for a while. He's been anointed to be king, but he's not on the throne. King Saul, the first king of Israel, is on the throne. And he's already showing himself to be a very bad king. By the time you get to this passage, he has twice tried to kill David with a spear. Twice. Up close and personal. He's trying to hunt him down. He feels threatened by David. David is his most successful warrior. He's threatened by it, and he wants to wipe him out, and so David knows that, so he's on the run for his life. About 400 men and maybe some families have gathered around him in the wilderness. So David is hiding from King Saul in the wilderness. He's got a group of at least 400 men plus around him. And so here's the situation. He's already anointed. He's living under great trial, great pain. 
He's not yet on the throne. 1 Samuel chapter 24. The beginning is a little bit earthy, but sometimes the Bible is earthy. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose, and he went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for 
your, your precious word, there, there's nothing like it. It's more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And we pray that you would enable us to see that and taste it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to I tell you about a really negative response I got one time to a sermon. And as I'm telling this to you, if you're, if you're hearing this and thinking, and you're being very self-righteous about this sermon and somebody not liking your sermon, if you're thinking that, uh, listen to the end, okay? I was preaching when I lived in another place at another time. I was preaching out of town in a church, and in this town was an organization very active in what we could call Christian political action, Uh, definitely of a more conservative stripe. And at least uh, a couple of members of this church were were very active in that organization about Christian political action. So it just so happened that when I was preaching at this church, I was preaching from the book of Romans on chapter 13. And here's how that chapter starts. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And just, I'm not going to preach on Romans 13, but just FYI, the the existing authorities, when Paul wrote that to the Roman Christians, for them is Nero, who was horrible. And you've got an apostle saying, God put him there. God established him there. He's there because God wants him to be. Submit to him. So I was preaching on that, and I was trying to connect the dots from that text to to, uh, our culture, and I commented about uh, how a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelical Christians on both sides, uh, but especially those on the right, can, can be so disrespectful and dismissive of the authorities that they don't like. Well, there's a guy waiting for me at the end of the service. And it's a guy that's involved with this organization. And uh, he really began to dispute the point, especially in light of who was president when I preached that sermon. And so we went back and forth. And uh, so anyway, I got through and I got back in my car and and I was driving back and I felt so hacked off. I thought, okay, that text was clear. And I was clear. Can you not read what's in black and white? And uh, it really irritated. And it took me a while for it to catch up with me. What he did to you is what you do to your family. When I get irritated in my family, I have concluded that I am right. I think the facts are on my side, and I think I can argue you down. I have an inner trial attorney. And because of the rightness of my position, and because you're not getting it, in the moment what it feels like is all these scriptures about gentleness and kindness and self-control, you know, they don't really matter at that point. Because we've got to get to the end, the conclusion. 
And it's funny, that's me doing what that guy did who irritated me so badly. In his mind, what's the end? We've got to change the people who are in political office right now, and if we have to be snarky to get there, it's okay. The means justify the end. And I was so frustrated with him saying, why can't you see what's in black and white? Hey, Brian, can you see in black and white that the Bible talks about gentleness and kindness and self-control? But in the moment, the end is, see my point. See that I'm right. And the, mean, uh, the end justifies the means of how I argue my way there. D- does this resonate with your experience at all? And I want to think about this passage in terms of the, the end and the means to the end. But I've got three points, not just two. I, let's think about it this way. The end, the truth, and the means. Okay. The end, the truth, and the means. Now, back to the passage. What is the great end if you're David or these 400-plus supporters who've gathered around him in the wilderness. The end is get Saul off the throne and preferably get rid of the guy. And this is where you've got to understand not only do these people have feelings, David has feelings. He's a real person. He's not a pretend Sunday school figure. He's living in the wilderness. He knows that God has anointed him to be king. That's real. And he's living this painful unpredictable life of suffering right now because of the badness of the man who sits on the throne. Nothing could be better than to get rid of him. That's his situation. The end is get rid of Saul. How do his supporters interpret what happens? Now, I don't have to unpack this for you, that Saul goes in this cave to relieve himself. Alone, completely vulnerable, and David and his men are in the cave. I mean, this is a slam dunk. What did they say to him? Now, I want you to notice this. Look in verse 4. The men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said... In fact, one Old Testament commentator said he could almost picture them quietly in the cave going, this is the day, this is the day. That's like a children's church song, just like, this is awesome. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, the interesting thing is, in the biblical account, there is no record of God saying that. Maybe he did, and it's just not written down. But what seems to be the case is, they're looking at what happened. We call that God's providence. It's like something that God causes to happen. They're looking at providence, and they're making that out to be God telling them something. Now, this is interesting, because we all do this. And we've sort of learned how to be nuanced in the way that we say it, but we'll say things like, I just really feel like God is telling me such and such, And we'll say that not because of something explicit in the Scriptures. We'll say it because we're kind of watching the different pieces of how life is going and we'll interpret what it's doing. And I'll just say this in passing. There's some things that Jesus said that we quote a lot and there's some things that Jesus said that we quote hardly ever. 
You want to hear one thing that Jesus said that we hardly ever quote? It is a wicked and adulterous generation that is always seeking after signs. Man, when we're confused or in a tough place, we want God to give us a sign. Or we'll just make something be a sign. When what he wants us to do is play off what? His explicit word. But the end is get rid of Saul. Now, what's the truth? And this is really the hard part. Because I'm telling you, if I had been one of those men, there's not a doubt in my mind I would have thought, how could it be anything else? Of all the caves, you know, of all the gin joints in all the world, of all the caves in all the world, he walks in alone and is totally vulnerable. He's the problem. This is not rocket science. And David won't do it. Why won't he do it? He won't do it because of what's true. What's true? And it says this three different times. Look in verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Look down in verse 10. Some told me to kill you, But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Saul has been so horrible. Has he acted like the king of Israel should act? No. But what does David go back to? Whether he's acted like that or not, here's the truth. He remains the Lord's anointed, and no one has the right to touch the Lord's anointed. And he doesn't just say that. Did you, he, he calls him my Lord three different times. He calls him the king of Israel, even though he has been anointed the king of Israel. And here's the one that kind of blows me away. Look in verse 11. He calls him my father. This man that's trying to hurt him and is bitter toward him. And he's having to live in this cave because of this man. And he calls him my father. In other words, the truth is not just the position that God established for him. But how he is to be spoken about and regarded. Because of what's true. Whatever inconvenience there is to me. Now, just stop and think about that. And then think about our lives. And let's, let's, go, let's kind of go big national culture, and then let's go very personal. Let's think about politics. That's sort of somewhat timely right now. Think about things that the Word of God says explicitly as true. I mean, I just read one of them to you. Any authorities that exist are there because God put them there. Any. He instituted them. He appointed them. He put them there. And the New Testament will say things like, you pray for anyone in a position of authority. That's God's will for us to pray for those in authority. But what do God's people often do? We feel like if the person, whether that's the presidency or the governor or whatever, whatever position, Supreme Court justice, 
if I don't like what they're doing, and I may have biblical reasons for not liking what they're doing. I mean, David had a pretty solid case from the law of God that King Saul is bad. And that King Saul doesn't really know what he's doing. Again, I would call that a slam dunk case. But for Christians to look at at someone who holds office because God put them there and to feel like any kind of criticism, any kind of joking, any kind of unwillingness to pray or wish God's blessing on them and their family is okay because of the rightness of my cause, because of the rightness of my stance. So the means don't really matter. The end is that we need to get that joker out of that office. And the end justifies the means. When what's true is that person is there because God placed that person there. That we are to pray for God's blessing on that person as the people of God. That's what's true. It's hard to feel it if we don't like the person. But let, let's, go, let's go closer. Let me, let me, you know, since misery loves company, and I was talking about anger and family and squabbles, I mean, think about it. No one punches our buttons like family. Be ye married or single or divorced, no one punches our buttons like family. That could be your sibling or your parent or your child or your spouse. When we punch each other's buttons, what is true at that moment? When we feel so right about being misunderstood or how you shouldn't do that thing that you keep doing, we are so right in our minds. And it may be biblically that we are right. But at that moment, what doesn't seem true? That the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and kindness and self-control or that the women are studying the book of James right now, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But in that moment, I don't care what that says. I'm right. When what we need to come back to is what is true. Even if you want this end, get my point. Concede my point. Be nicer to me. Do this thing that I want you to do. Stop doing the thing that I don't want you to do. Even if that's biblically true, the truth of God about the means is just as true. It doesn't go away. I mean, there's Saul. He's bad. He's betrayed Israel. He's trying to kill you. It would be right to get rid of him, wouldn't it? No, because it's wrong to put your hand on the Lord's anointed then how will we get rid of him? You don't have to understand that. Now, that gets to the last thing, the means. You may be sitting here right now thinking, well, it just sounds like you're saying be passive about everything. Be passive about problems in the world and be passive about hard when somebody messes you over in your own life. Is David, first off, is David dumb? Did you catch the last verse? Saul, alligator tears, or is it crocodile? I think it's crocodile. Okay. Crocodile tears. 
you know, my son, you're better than me. I'm bad, you're good. You're good, I'm bad. You'll be the king of Israel. What's the last verse? Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. You understand what that means? You know, I'm, I'm thinking Saul's wanting to go, okay, uh, uh, you're great. Come back, it'll be happy again. And David says, I won't harm you, and immediately goes into hiding again. David is wise. He does not trust this man. David is a realist. So is he just passive about everything? Think about this. Think about, this is, this is amazing how there's ways that we don't talk like people in the Bible, and there's ways we talk exactly like people in the Bible. When, and you don't have to be a religious person for this to be true. When there's something in your life that you know is, not, is out of your control, and you and in your saner moments, you know it's out of your control, but you want to control it, and you feel yourself wanting to control it, what do we say? We'll say, I want to get my what on it. I just want to get my hands on it. What word keeps recurring in this passage? I just want to walk you through part of it. Look in verse 4. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. Verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. And look in verse 10. This is David calling out to Saul. This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord. Now, again, you might say, noble, commendable, but he's just being a big, giant pacifist. He's passive. Look in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Look in verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. That word is all through this passage. And what is David saying? I don't want you to put your hands on me. I don't want you to kill me and my men. But your cause is wicked. And I'm not going to put my hand on you because you're the Lord's, Lord's anointed. But what I'm going to do is to trust the Lord. May the Lord judge you. It's amazing that he is able to hang on to respect my Lord, my King, the King of Israel, my Father, the Lord's anointed. And may God deal with you because I can't. I must not. I will not put I will not put my hand on you. And so, this this is what one writer called uh doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Not just doing the Lord's work, but doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And then so for the rest of his monarchy, David always did the Lord's work in the Lord's way, right? And we'll get into this later. He brought a gigantic plague on Israel one time when he wanted to do the Lord's work. 
and he did not want to do it in the Lord's way. And it was horrible. Let me ask you this. What are the highest stakes there have ever been about a monarchy? What are the highest stakes there have ever been in a monarchy? And you know what it was? And it doesn't look like a big showdown about a monarchy. It's in the Gospels right after Jesus has been baptized by John. And the Holy Spirit has come down on him visibly, which really we could understand as publicly his anointing as the definitive king of Israel. And he's immediately sent out into, of all places, in light of this passage, the wilderness. And he squares off with the devil. And I always feel the need to say this. The devil in scriptures, and especially in the Gospels, is never presented as a mythic figure or as a metaphor. He's presented as a real, personal, if I can use this word, ontological being. And that's how Jesus understood him. And one of the, he comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He's newly anointed king. And one of the temptations is, if you're the son of God, if you're really the anointed one, bow down to me. And I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. They're mine to give. And Jesus doesn't dispute that point. He doesn't say, no, they're not. The devil says, they're mine to give. If, if you're the son of God, if you're the anointed one, you're supposed to have all the kingdoms of the world. That's what the Psalms and the prophets and all that say. So if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give them to you, and you won't have to do all that waiting. And you won't have to be sad. You won't have to suffer. You won't have to die in front of your mom. Just bow down to me. And... You know, and I'm drawing on other scriptures here. Jesus, as the Son of God, had the power to just smoke him at that moment. And it wouldn't have been like, you know, Dumbledore versus Voldemort. Mm, I don't know how it's going to turn out. There's like lightning coming out of both their wands. It could go either way. It would have just been over. And what the Son of God, the King of Israel, would do is he would just quote the truth to him. Isn't that incredible? Like, he would, just, he would just quote Deuteronomy to him. Yeah, I am, I am the king of Israel. I am the son of God. I will sit on the throne. I'm not going to get to it that way because here's what's true. The end must be true and the means must be true. And so what did that mean for, what did that mean for his hands? They got nails hammered through them. That's what it meant, because that was doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. That, that not only for Jesus to have his crown and be seen, seen as the king that he really was and is the whole time, the only way he could do that was to go through God's means. God's means was to live a crummy life and live in a poor family, and undergo racism, and undergo injustice, and go through a kangaroo court, and be hated by the Jews, and be hated by the Gentiles, and fall under the justice that we deserve for us. That's the means, and it was brutal. 
And that's how he got his crown. Um, and, and, you know, and I, if, if we stop there, all that would be true. But I want you to think about our means and ends and crowns. Uh, I was at a Bible study here in Greenville several years ago. And I won't say which one, but it was, it was, I was sitting in a Bible study in a little fellowship hall. And I'll just say this. I was the only white person at this Bible study, and I may have been the most affluent person at this particular Bible study. All right? And, uh, and one of the only men there. So the pastor was uh, teaching, and just in passing, he talked about, what, what does the Bible say about your crown? So the Bible says at the end, God's going to give you a crown. And he said, that crown is for you. When God gives you your crown, that crown fits your head. Because that's your crown. And the mostly women in this Bible study nodded. Like, this was something that they talked about often. And I thought, I never talk about that. Because I think that as somebody with some means, who spends most of my time with people who have some means, that we kind of feel like we've got it going on. So why would we talk about a crown? But you know what? Jesus, the risen Christ in the Revelation, says at the end to his people, he gives a crown. And James, the apostle, says there is a crown. And Peter, the apostle, says there is a crown. And John says there's... When Jesus and his apostles say there's a crown, there's a crown. And I'll go further. The New Testament says that we are anointed. We are anointed, not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. You know what our lives are right now? We live between the already of being anointed and the not yet of being crowned, and it's hard. And the temptation is figure out some way not to have to be sad. Figure out some way to put your hands on it where you don't have to trust the Lord. And that is not the Lord's way. The Lord's way is, as you live between the already and the not yet, is to trust Him and to wait and to trust Him and to suffer and to trust Him and to often be sad and to trust Him. And for those who do that, because our perfect king of Israel went before us and did what David couldn't do, here's what James says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our great King of Israel. Thank you for your son, David's greater son, our, our dear Lord Jesus. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that because you did your Father's work in your Father's way, 
that not only are you on your throne, crowned as you should be, but we will be crowned. Would you help us between the already and the not yet to play off what is true and to trust you, to participate in the waiting and the suffering that you give to us that we might be crowned by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.